Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. God doesn't just delight in, in taking punishment out because your father sinned. Is it some kind of generational curse? That because you, uh, your father was a drunk and he was a fornicator, that somehow you're going to pay the price for it? No. Of those who hate me. If you are a hater of God and your father did those ugly and awful things, he's, he's going to pay the price for that if he doesn't confess his sin and receive Christ. But you, as a son or a daughter, are you going to pay the price for that? Well, you may. You may have consequences, but God's not going to hold that sin to your charge. But if you hate God, just like your father did, guess what? You're going to have a problem too. And unless you repent, you're going to perish and go to hell like your father did. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today on Truth in Christ Radio. Pastor Rob continues to analyze the specific laws given by God to the nation of Israel. In our lesson today, we learn that our God is a just God by holding everyone personally responsible for their own sin. God tells us that as long as we don't reject Him and agree to obey Him, He will show mercy on us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for redeeming us with your sacrifice so that we know that when we place our belief and our trust in you, we will never perish. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Let's join Pastor Rob. There is listed these 282 laws, and I just want to read a couple to you because it makes sense with what we're going to be talking about, especially the verse we just read. Number 229 of Hammurabi's Code says this, If a carpenter has erected a poorly constructed house so that the walls cave in and kill the homeowner, the carpenter shall be executed. Okay, that's kind of harsh. You know, it, what it is, is it's like due diligence. You know, he's responsible, I guess, for the house. That, that one I might be able to stomach a little bit. I can understand maybe. But notice this one. If the poorly constructed house causes the death of the homeowner's son... The carpenter's son shall be executed. That's a whole different story, isn't it? Now we're taking my shoddy construction techniques, and now you're going to put my daughter or my son to death because your son, the house caved in and your son got killed. And um, aren't you glad that God's laws are fair and they're just? When man puts forth something like this, this is the best man can do. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you kill my, my son, then your son has to be put to death, right? But God says, what did he just say? <laughs> fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own, his own sin. Under God's law, you pay the penalty for your own sin. And hopefully you don't have to pay the price for your sin, because if you do, you're condemned forever. If you pay the price for your own sin, the price of your sin, of your own volition, is going to be your life and your life separated from God and hell for eternity. 
But if Jesus takes the, the sin, your sin upon himself, he pays the price, which he already has. And then now you and I can have everlasting life by faith in the one who took the price and the penalty for our sin. There are four different times in the scripture, and they're all in the Old Testament, where it talks about this idea of God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. And I want to show you something that's really interesting here, and you might want to write these four down in the order that I give them to you, because I want to show you something really sweet. And the first one is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And I want you to write down Exodus 34, verse 7. And write down Numbers, chapter 14, verse 18. And then write down Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 9. And what is the significance of that order? Well, the very first one reads this. And this is one that's often misconstrued, and people have this warped idea of who God is. I want you to circle the first reference that I gave you, and I want you to circle the final one in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. Looks like a bookend, doesn't it? There's this one on top and the one on the bottom. They're both circled, and then there's two in the middle. Let me read to you what the first one says in Exodus 20, and I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, You should not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now listen, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Notice, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, notice, underline this, of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. Now the reason I make such a big deal of that, go to the next one in Exodus 34, verse uh, verse 7. I'm going to read verse 6 and 7 together. Now notice this. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Period. End quote. Most people think of that verse, and they think, God is so cruel. God is so cruel. (laughs) But what they don't realize is the very first instance of that, God specifies of those who hate me. And that's the thing you've got to hang on to. And we're not going to take the time to look at Numbers 14, verse 8, because it's just like the one we just read. But the very last one, Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, it bookends the whole idea again. And this is what it says. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. God doesn't just delight in in taking punishment out because your father sinned. Is it some kind of generational curse? That because you, uh, your father was a drunk and he was a fornicator, that somehow you're going to pay the price for it? No. Of those who hate me. If you are a hater of God and your father did those ugly and awful things, he's, he's going to pay the price for that if he doesn't confess his sin and receive Christ. But you, as a son or a daughter, are you going to pay the price for that? Well, you may. You may have consequences, but God's not going to hold that sin to your charge. But if you hate God, just like your father did, guess what? You're going to have a problem too. And unless you repent, you're going to perish and go to hell like your father did. 
to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But any time along the way, that son or child, that son or daughter has the ability to break that chain and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to hate God. I'm not going to follow what my dad did. I've learned a lesson by watching his life. If you've got an alcoholic father, if you've got a drug addict as a mother, don't blame them for your sin. You need to pull your bootstraps up. You need to get your head together, and you need to get on your knees and need to beg God for help. He's the only one that's going to help you, the only one who really loves you unconditionally, and you don't have to pay him an absorbent fee to come in and confess your sin. You can come in before him and say, Father, I've had enough of this. I've seen the, the, the horrible thing that this has done to my family, and I am done with this. And God says, I'm going to start brand new with you. Brand new. That's, that's me. That was my life. I mean, certainly my mom was not a drunk or a drug addict, but I was one of the first in my family for a long time to, to finally give my heart to him. And so only to those who hate him those things perpetuate and they continue. But don't blame your father or your family's sin. Don't blame it on them. If you're struggling with it, you need to get your attitude right and you need to get your life in order. And let me tell you, there are plenty of people in this church. Certainly the Holy Spirit himself is going to come to your aid when you cry out to him because he wants to clean your life. He wants to bless your life. He wants your life to be a blessing that you would not only bear fruit but much fruit And that is something that he desires to do. Are you willing to let him do that? Or are you going to have the pity party and continue to blame your circumstances upon the culture, upon your parents? It's easy to do because it never requires anything of you. You can just point the finger. Point the finger. It's everybody else's fault. It's not mine. It's a nonsense. It's your fault. You need to get out of it. You need to get out of it. Verse 17, he says, You shall not pervert justice, do the, the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. In the next few verses, you're going to see this phrase, stranger, fatherless, and widow. You're going to see it over and over again. In fact, in the Bible, and it, and it happens in the Old Testament only, this phrase, stranger, fatherless, or widow, or widows, occurs 15 times. Fifteen times. Why? Because God is concerned about the fatherless. He's concerned about the widow because there's no man in the house. The father has died, so you got a child who is fatherless. I was fatherless. My father died when I was seven years old, and I didn't have a father. I don't really remember that much about him. But I knew God was my father, and I rebelled against him until I was 24 years old. My mother was a widow. God cared for us. He took care of us. Was it easy? No. Was it hard? You better believe it was hard. But does he have a passion and a compassion for the stranger, those who are outside the, the, the stranger? I mean, the children of Israel were strangers in a land of Egypt. God has a passion for the fatherless and the widow, those who don't have a male role model in the home, a father, a husband. These things are extremely important, and part of the problem with our society now is there's so many young people running around with it without a dad. They're running around without a mom. Because instead of getting their hearts right and, and kneeling at the throne of God and, and asking him and begging him, if necessary, for help, the hardness of hearts continues. And there's, there's, there's no breaking out of that mold. They just continue to hate and hate and hate. And the next thing you know, the family splinters. And you grow up hating. 
And then you get married, and is it no wonder that you are divorced and have divorced and have three or four divorces? I'll be honest with you. My father or my mother, I'm sorry, and my brother, I love them dearly, and they're wonderful people. But I've learned from their life. I've seen their life. And each of them, my mom has been married and divorced four times. My brother has been married uh, and divorced, I I believe, uh, this is his fifth marriage. I've seen the destruction. I've seen what it does to their kids, what it does to families. And in Deuteronomy alone, this phrase, the fatherless, the stranger, the widow, it comes up 11 times. It happens once in the Psalms, Psalm 94, verse 6, twice in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, verse 6, and 22, verse 3. And finally, even in the prophets, in Ezekiel 22, verse 7, God cares about those people who have no covering He especially cares and loves them. And I can testify to the fact that God, even in my rebellion, before I came to know him, that he took care of me. I wasn't even aware that he was, but he was watching out for me because I should have been dead several times over. I'm not kidding. And maybe you have the same testimony. And God miraculously saved me several times. He's such a good God. Isn't he good? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he all the things that he says he is? Isn't he everything that the Bible says he is? And yet, even the Bible struggles with language to describe this great and awesome God. The Apostle Paul said, I can't even describe the things that I've seen you. It'd be, a, it'd be unlawful for me. It'd be a crime for me to try and to put into words. It, uh, there's not even enough vocabulary in any language. You put them all together, all the beautiful words, and there's nothing comparing to who he is and what we have awaiting us. Nothing compares. Nothing compares. No language. Take the most beautiful phrases, the most beautiful words, the most beautiful adjectives, and they're nothing When we stand before Jesus Christ, we are going to be completely undone, folks. We're going to involuntarily fall flat on our face. My knees won't even, they'll respond to his presence, and they'll just collapse. (laughs) And I'll be flailing on the ground in total wonder, in wonderful wonder. I don't know about you, but that just excites me. Does it excite you? That's the way we need to be thinking about him, not this, we become so familiar with him that we lose that. No, remember who he is and who we are and the great gulf that was between and the only one, the mediator, Jesus Christ, only made us one in him because of his sacrifice. It's only because of him that I have this great privilege, that you have this great privilege. What an awesome God we serve. Hallelujah. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Yes, he's awesome. Verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Notice, therefore I command you to do this thing. It's like the golden rule. This is like the golden rule in the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12? He says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets can be summed up in that. Whatever you want men to do to you, you do the same thing to them. And you love yourself, so you do good things to yourself, right? So if you love yourself, how ought you to love others and to do the same things for them? Do you like to have your tummy full? Then if you find out that somebody doesn't have their tummy full and they don't have the money, why don't you help them? Do you like to feel warm on a, on a cold winter night in Rochester when it's 8 below zero with the wind chill, but it feels like negative 12? You do. 
Do you have compassion on the person who maybe is, is without a home or maybe on the street? It's the golden rule of the Old Testament, what we just read. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be, again, notice, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And I love that. A sheaf is just, you see that in, uh, in fields, even here in Rochester, out, out west of the city. You'll see somebody have a, 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 a hay field, or they'll grow hay or wheat or something like that, and they'll bale it up. You can see it out west. They just have these big bales, and they keep these sheaves out there. And in Israel's time, they just had, they'd wrap the sheaves up into a big bundle. And he's like, if you forget one or two, don't worry about it. Leave it. Why? So that the fatherless, the stranger, and the widow, they will have something to glean from. The idea is leaving those things for them because they don't have a covering. They don't have somebody bringing home money to help them. They're kind of at the, at the mercy of everyone around them. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap... Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I remember seeing this a couple of weeks ago. We were on our way to Indianapolis. And uh, we were driving, and I saw uh, that very thing. Uh, A field that had the the first couple of rows all the way around the perimeter of the farm field was still left. But the innards of it were, were harvested. But the rest were left for that very thing, for people driving by. You stop by and you just want to get a couple of ears of corn. You know, it's one thing if you're pulling up with a great big production and you're just scraping the whole thing like a, like a bunch of locusts. <laughs> but if you just grab an ear or two for, you know, just to, to have some beautiful sweet corn, that's why I put it out there, especially if you don't have a lot. Or maybe it's just a generosity. He just wants to bless others. But the, that's the idea. It's compassion. It's, the idea is love. And you remember in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth, who accompanied Naomi, they were in Moab, you remember. Naomi had a husband, Elimelech, and they went to Moab because there was a, a, a famine in the land. So they go to Moab, and they take their two sons, Malon and Chilion, with them. So they go, the four of them, into Moab. And while they're there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and the two sons marry Moabite girls. One's Orpah. And the other one was Ruth. And then in the process of that 10 years they were there, Malon and Chilion died as well, and they had no children. And so Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, they come back to Israel. They found out there was food in the land again, so they come back after 10 years. And the Bible tells us, you can read this, and we're not going to read it tonight, but just look at Ruth chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 12. But what happens is, is the next in the, the, the kinsman redeemer, who was Boaz, he was uh, Naomi's, at least her, her brother-in-law, it was Elimelech's brother or uncle or someone. And as a result of his, he was a very wealthy man, so he had a lot of fields, and he allowed Ruth to come and to glean. He allowed her to come after the harvest had been done. He allowed her to go and glean because she didn't have any money. She didn't have any way of making a living. So Boaz allows her to come into the field and glean those things that, that she and Naomi would need for food. And in process of time, we, we know that Boaz ultimately married Ruth and provided the, uh, 
he did the duty of what they call the custom of the Leverite, and that was to, when a member of the family, a brother, dies, the other brother, as, as long as they didn't have any children, the, the brother was to go into his brother's wife who had no children and to be with her and to take her as his own wife and to raise up seed for his brother. And that kept the inheritance, it kept the land, everything in a nice tight bow. And that was God's design for the children of Israel. And it's interesting to me that David, the result of Boaz and Ruth, Ruth was David's great-grandmother. And Boaz was David, King David's great-grandfather. The result of this man, this Bethlehem, this Judah, man of Judah, and he marries a Gentile woman, a Gentile bride from Moab. Sounds like something happened down in history where another Jewish man paid the price and took a bride unto himself, a Gentile bride. That's you and me, folks, or the Gentile bride. I don't know if anybody's Jewish here tonight, but I'm not Jewish. I don't have any Jewish in me. I wish I did, but I don't. (laughs) But we've been made one with him. And he says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in a land of Egypt, verse 22. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Let's see. Let's go ahead and get into chapter 25. We may only get uh, halfway through it. We'll see. It says, If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. Right there, right then and there, according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Verse 3, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. And you know how, again, you know, not to sound too harsh here, but, I, but I'll be honest with you. I look at our culture, and I've said this before. Forgive me if I sound like a broken record, but we're right in the middle of this, and it makes sense. You know, when we look at our culture, there, there's, there's very little deterrent for sin. Most of the time when somebody commits a sin, they, they go to jail, and it's air-conditioned, it's heated, they get food. And in some places, you can even get an education. you got cable television. You know, sometimes it's not so bad to be in a, in a, in a cell and, and get those things. I just sat there with my Bible and my guitar. Of course, they probably wouldn't let me have my guitar because I could hang myself with the string, right, so they wouldn't let me have the, the guitar. Of course, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, there's all these, all these benefits. And, again, not to be down upon that, but, you know, you, you think there's really no deterrent anymore. We, we've softened things so much that there's, nobody has any fear of doing anything wrong. I could go into a bank with a gun, and I could put it at the tellers right in front of her and say, give me the money, and then a police officer behind me says, put the gun down. I put the gun down, and then maybe, maybe he forgets to load his gun or something, and I run out the door. You know, I get away, you know, and there, there's no, or, or even if I do get caught, you know, he, you know, if I put the gun down, then I, I go to jail, I go to prison. And then, uh, you know, on good behavior, I may do five years, maybe ten years, maybe, maybe less than that if my lawyer's really good. Or if they forgot to read me the Miranda warning. The Miranda warning is the one where it says you shall 
Um, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. If you don't have an, uh, an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Do you understand these Miranda rights that have been read to you? And you'd say, yes, I do. But there's very little deterrent today. But notice that the Jews... Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Deuteronomy. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. And that number again is 585-586-3140. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, ministry and contact information, our location and service times, and much more. You can even download the radio and sanctuary messages in MP3 format free of charge from the resources link. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester Sanctuary Messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play or Apple Podcast. We are so glad that you could join us today, and if there is any way that we could bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.